Morning, church. Good to see everybody. Good to hear you sing this morning. What a special time, special in the life of the church. Child dedication. Uh, special welcome to those family and friends that are here uh, to support the kiddos and grandbabies being dedicated. Uh, I love child dedication morning. Uh, I love it for any number of reasons. One of the reasons I love it is Sherry and I have three adult kids. All three were dedicated right here on this platform over 20 years ago now to hear the people of God commit to supporting our children 20 years ago uh, was a huge encouragement. Frankly, it can, that commitment continues to be an encouragement to us because as many of us know, the work of disciple making as parents doesn't end when they turn 18. I see some of you nodding your heads uh, with a lot of passion. We want to be influences, positively so, in the faith of our kid, long, kids long after they turn 18, don't we? And we need the support of each other to get that done. In fact, this congregation has been a tremendous support to Sherry and I in our disciple-making effort at home, continues to be, and I know I'm not unique in that. Can I get an amen? I mean, I know that we're cheering each other on to loving good deeds. I love the refrain of the commitment, and it's now at least 27 years old, when we affirm as a congregation that we'll not bruise their tender lives with harsh words, quick judgments, or unfair criticisms. What a blessing. What a blessing that we commit to doing that as a congregation, cheering each other's kids on to follow after Jesus and being patient with each other and bearing with one another. Love it. I'm a little pumped, if you can't tell. In fact, I would, I would warn of those parents without kids or with young kids, uh, careful what verse you choose to dedicate your child with. Our, kid, our oldest now has the entirety of the dedication verse tattooed on his right peck. No joke, I took him to get it done. And they misspelled one word. They left, thankfully, it was at the end of, of the, Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous, right? Mark's dedication verse and they left off an E on the end of one word. So he just freehanded it, not joke. We had to turn around. Andrew's looking in the mirror on the way home. Oh my gosh. So anyway, all's good. <laughs> Careful the verse you choose, because your kids may fall in love with it. Praise God, may fall in love with the verse. As I saw the little kids up here on the platform and thought about them this week in preparation for preaching, the little children reminded me of the approach of Advent season. That season in which we celebrate Jesus' birth, his arrival as a little baby into the world. We'll complete our series in the book of Revelation next week on the 28th, and then we'll start the Advent series on December 5th. Advent means coming or arrival. It's the season of preparation leading up to the Christmas morning, the day in which we celebrate the arrival of God on earth, God in the flesh, God born to a virgin on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, God himself taking on flesh, born as a little baby in Bethlehem. It's a beautiful story of God's care for us, and it's one of my favorite times of year. That's why I am the first, Sherry and I, I'll include you in this, we are the first to get our Christmas lights up on our street this year. Some of our neighbors were remarking this morning, you already, not only do we have them up, we have them on, which I know is anathema. You're not to do that until after Thanksgiving, but 
just love this time of year. A, a, a light has dawned in the world, and it is Christ the Savior. It's a beautiful story. A little baby born in a manger. Let's be honest, the image of the Christ child resting peacefully in a manger, wrapped tightly in strips of cloth with choirs of angels singing in the heavens of his arrival is one of the warmest of Christmas images that our faith has to offer. It's a beautiful picture of God's identifying with us, entering with us into the valley of the shadow of death. That is our world full of sin, which leads to death. God joins us in that. So beautiful is this image, in fact, so heartwarming that for some, Jesus never grows up. For many people in their imagination, in their understanding, Jesus never becomes a man. Instead, he is perpetually in the manger, a baby, eternally cute, cuddly, harmless, right? Babies aren't threatening to anyone, unless, of course, you want to sleep through the night, then they're a threat to all civilization. <laughs> Babies themselves, however, are completely and utterly dependent on others for all their needs, and for some, that is the extent of their understanding of what took place at Christmas, which we celebrate at Christmas. Christ, God entering the world, cute, cuddly, helpless, harmless, even weak, as it were. Let me ask us, when we picture Jesus, and I hope we do, in fact, I'd go so far as to say the limits of our imagination in some cases prevent us from praying effectively. We have trouble or haven't grown to exercise our mind's imagination sufficiently enough to call upon heaven in the goodness of God. So when you picture Christ, how do you picture him? And do you picture him not simply as the little child lying in a manger in strips of cloth, cuddly and cute, helpless, harmless, do you picture him in his full humanity? Perhaps you picture him as an adolescent, prepubescent, having a panicked Mary and Joseph. They can't find him. He's not in the caravan, headed back to Nazareth. Instead, he stayed behind. And when they find him, he's lecturing the rabbis in the temple courts. Beautiful image. Growing in wisdom and stature. How's your imagination? Do you picture him walking on water, feeding 5,000, delivering the demoniac? Do you picture him suffering on a cross? More, that's a more common image, isn't it? Raised, gently helping Thomas, showing him the wounds, the raised Savior. How about the ascended Savior? The disciples are befuddled by the fact that he's into the heavens and angels appear to explain, we'll see him, you'll see him again, just in that way, his ascension. How do you picture Christ? When you offer Christ to your kids, when disciple making's happening in the home and you're explaining who Christ their Savior is, how do you encourage them to picture Christ? 
Turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Revelation 19. Follow along as I read of the second advent, the second coming of our Lord to earth. And he comes back as anything but a baby. As you're turning there, I'll give a little bit of background. We have some guests with us this morning because of child dedication. This is our ninth week in the book of Revelation. Revelation simply means revealing. God is revealing the consummation of history, the end of all things, when he's going to effectively deal with evil once and for all, when he's going to celebrate his son and care for all those who are trusting in him. That's what's being revealed in the book of Revelation. In this morning's passage, we'll read of Jesus' return to earth. He does not come back as a baby. He comes back as a warrior. I wonder if anybody, any of us, picture Christ as a warrior. I wonder if any of us offer Christ, the image of Christ, as warrior to our kiddos when we're trying to help them understand God's work in redemptive history. Who is Christ? What has God given us that we can be saved? Who is this man, Christ, our Savior? Baby, adolescent, teaching adult men in the temple courts, suffering servant, miracle worker, brilliant ethicist, turn the other cheek, do as to others as you would have them do unto you, raised, ascended, and soon to return as a victorious warrior. Follow along as I read Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to begin in verse 11. John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. It's the name of the, the man on the horse. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. His, he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses as well, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Note the armies of heaven, they're their garments are not dipped in blood. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. This is the same sword alluded to, I believe it's in chapter 2 of the book, double-edged sword. In Hebrews, we learn it's, it's sharp, it pierces, it cuts, it reveals the thoughts and intentions of men's hearts. Here, it's born against the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. That's a quote from the Old Testament, Isaiah. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God on his robe. And on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This passage paints a little bit different picture of Jesus than that of a helpless and harmless baby. It's a different picture than what we might imagine I wonder if we're exercising our imagination. I wonder if we're following Christ in all his humanity. I wonder if we have a full picture of who he is. I wonder if we're offering that picture to those in our homes, to our friends and our neighbors. 
Surely this needs to be included to understand who our Savior is. While each of the, the descriptions of Christ, baby, adolescent, grown man, miracle worker, ethicist, raised Savior, suffering Savior, raised Savior, ascended Savior, all of these are important. These make up who our Savior is. We need to also include warrior. And note that his eyes are like blazing fire. He rides on a victorious steed, white, in the ancient world, head crowned with many crowns, robe dipped in blood. It's not his own blood this time. He's leading the armies of heaven, wielding a sword against the nations. This morning, God the Son is in heaven waiting on God the Father to give him the go-ahead. Jesus, our Savior, is embodied this morning. He's not disembodied. He's still identifying with humanity, still embodied. He has a raised body. He has a glorified body. It bears the wounds that he suffered for his people's sake. And he's standing at the right hand of the throne of God the Father, waiting for the go. And when he comes back, he will return as a warrior. Which means there's no room for interpreting Scripture by sloppy sentimentality. Which is often the lion's share of the Christmas images offered by popular culture. Yes, the image of Christ in the manger is beautiful, but it is not the full story. Christ will soon return as a warrior. In fact, if you read the balance of 19, and I encourage you to do so later today, it is sobering. It's anything but sentimental. It depicts the invitation for birds of the air to come feast on the flesh of the enemies of God. There are prisoners of war in the balance of chapter 19. You, the beast, namely, the false prophet who deceived the nations of the world and led them astray into false worship of Satan. If you were here last week, you'll remember the unholy trinity of Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. Jesus, the one on the white horse with the sword of his mouth, these are taken captive and thrown alive into the lake of fire at the end of 19. It's a sobering account of Jesus' victory over all those who would defy him, refusing to trust in him, follow after him, give God the worship he's due. In fact, I mentioned King Jesus has a robe this morning dipped in blood. There is some debate over whose bloods he have on him. I fall out in the debate believing it's not his blood, the blood, though, of, the, of those whom he's defeated. When he was born a baby, he was born to spill his own blood, praise God, which he did as a man, sacrificing his life on the cross. But when Jesus comes a second time, we know very clearly he comes to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. That means he comes to produce, right? The wrath of God. He comes to carry it out. 
Jesus will give people what they deserve. The punishment will fit the crimes exactly. He's a just judge who will return to wage war. Now, some of us might be shocked by the forcefulness of the description of Jesus. Every time child dedication rolls around, I have to scramble to remember what was I going to talk about on child dedication morning, because I know that we have guests with us this morning. And if this is shocking to you, I can understand that. I'll never forget a a, uh, a child dedication morning when I had scheduled, this was lamentably, um, an exorcism was the passage of the morning. I've grown a little bit as a preacher. I can understand that the forcefulness of this passage could be a shock, but we need to embrace it nonetheless so that we can know the Savior in full, not in part. We don't want to base our lives on on just a little of the truth of God shown towards us in Christ. We want the whole of the story because we know who our God is. He's good and loving and merciful. If we're unnerved by the reality that Jesus will return as a warrior, it might be because we're failing to see our need in the world for a perfectly righteous warrior. Do we see our need? Do we see the need for a just judge? Do we see our need for one named faithful and true? Do we see the need in the world in which we live for faithlessness and falsehood to be addressed? Perhaps you've been a part of a business deal where contracts were signed and then someone backed out and you were left. They they were faithless to the contract and you were left holding the bag, culpable, responsible. You probably see the need for one who's faithful to come and execute justice perfectly. If you've been lied to or if you've lied to someone, I think of the families that will gather together this week for Thanksgiving. Some of our families, mine would be one, broken, grew up in a divorced home, in which there was faithlessness and which there was falsehood. And by God's grace, he's come into my family and cared for my family. But I see an acute need for one who's named faithful and true in the world. Imagine the arrival of one whose very presence, and by the words he speaks, he sets all wrongs right. And he takes the chaos that's been unleashed in the world because of my sin and our sin, and he brings peace. Man, I see a need for that one. We are hardwired to desire justice. We're hardwired for it. We long for justice. We're also hardwired to treat others unjustly. 
we live in a world that can only provide limited justice. Imperfect justice is what I'm getting at. This has been proven once again in just the last week as two men who were previously found guilty in the year 1965 for the murder of Malcolm X were exonerated. And what the judge who revisited the case called the grossest miscarriage of justice he's ever known of. Can you imagine? They had alibis that were set aside. Instead, charges were trumped up and testimony silenced, and they were sent to jail. 1965, one of them passed in, 19, in 1987, I believe it was, and he didn't hear of his exoneration. Over and against this backdrop, our country is now deeply divided on yet another courtroom decision, Kyle Rittenhouse's verdict. I'm not saying anything about the verdict. I'm just saying we're divided over it. We deeply long for justice, and we realize that in this world, at best, we see through a glass darkly, don't we? We live in a world of darkness, and we, we cry out for the lights, and we, we grope around trying to secure justice as best as we're able. We need one who's faithful and true. Consider the suspicious disappearance, I'm, I like to follow the news, okay, of the number one tennis player in the nation of China. Disappeared. Do you know why she disappeared? She just reappeared, I read this morning. She disappeared because she had the gall to talk publicly about crimes committed against her by a government official, and she disappeared. Folks, we need someone who's faithful and true, but then there's this outcry from the world. We have this deep desire for justice and a global outcry from the tennis community. We want to know where she is. And for weeks, they wouldn't produce her. She showed up, I believe, yesterday at a public event. It's still unclear as to whether or not she's under house arrest for what she spoke about crimes committed against her. We, we clearly need one who's faithful and true if justice is ever to be secured in this world. In the Old Testament, this one, this one that we, we need to come, the one named faithful and true, is called by another name. Maybe you're familiar with it. This is a lesser known Old Testament name by which God reveals himself, Yahweh Sabaoth. It means Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. Throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself by sharing various names that capture his essence. He's trying to make himself known to the people of God. He wants Israel to understand who they're following, who they're trusting in, and he he's wants them to trust in him fully. So he reveals himself by these names, Yahweh, Lord, right? Sabaoth, hosts, armies, Lord of armies. Folks, Jesus is the incarnation of Yahweh Sabaoth. He is himself Lord of armies, the Lord of the heavenly host. Right? Incarnation means enfleshed. He's, Colossians 1.16, the image, the exact image, representation of God in the flesh. 
I think one of the reasons that we get the second commandment, don't make any graven images. Why? Because I'm going to send you my exact representation of who I am. Jesus said to himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Here we see him. There's nothing inconsistent with God the Father that we see in God the Son. And here he comes back leading an army. The first time this name is talked about, the context is one of battle. It's a well-known battle. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a whole book about it. David and Goliath. The teenage boy shepherd David stands off against the nine-foot-tall Goliath. Saul, the king who should have been on the battlefield, offers David his armor. David can't carry the armor. He's too scrawny. Yet he stands across from a nine-foot-tall Philistine whose armor is so heavy, David would have been crushed by it. The tip of his spear weighed 125 pounds. Imagine throwing something like that or trying to throw something that way. Here's the verse where David stands down, the Philistine. And David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. I come to you not with a sling. That's not what he says. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, armies, Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Of course, the nation of Israel was a theocracy at this time, right? Which means they were uniquely established by God and governed by God's law for God's purposes. The purpose was to bring a Messiah to save humanity, to fulfill the promises originally made to Abram. I'll bless all the nations of the world through you. So David stands here in front of this nine-foot-tall Philistine giant because the covenant is in jeopardy. That's what the Old Testament is. It's this series of covenant jeopardy where the promises of God are being jeopardized by the sin of humanity. Sometimes it's the sin of Israel. Sometimes it's the sinfulness of the Philistines. And David says, I come to you in the name of the one you defy. It's for his glory and his people and his purposes that I, I stand in front of you. While a theocracy no longer exists on earth, there is still a people who have been established by God and governed by God's rule and authority in their lives. There's still a people who live for God's purposes. It's those who are following the Messiah, trusting in the Savior, those who identify with the Christ, both Jew and Gentile alike. We often want to separate Old Testament from New Testament. We want to say the Old Testament. Uh, that was the vengeful, wrathful, angry God. Really? Read chapter 19. <laughs> the last, close, nearest the last chapter in the Bible. Because Yahweh Sabaoth is returning. The warrior's coming back. Jesus, here's the gospel. The good news is Jesus is better than David who simply came to represent the name of Yahweh Sabaoth. Jesus actually is Yahweh Sabaoth. He's the one that commands heaven's armies. Tattooed or written, I'm not sure if it's tattooed, written on his thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We need to make sure we understand God is the same yesterday, 
today and forever. We should not divorce Old Testament and New Testament. We should see clearly the work of God culminating throughout history as God's keeping his promises to the Israelites, to Abram and his descendants. And we see that promise keeping in the Messiah. But again, I wonder if we see the, the need for Yahweh Sabaoth to return. Because as we see our need for God's promise keeping, his provision, his hope in the warrior returning, we wait more contentedly, we wait more with greater dedication, we image the Messiah, his character, his conduct and concerns more fully. How are we doing at waiting? If we don't see the need for the warrior to return, then we probably won't wait with contentedness and dedication. Let me suggest some takeaways for us as we embrace Christ the warrior. I want to encourage us to glean from this a posture of prayer. We're actually taught by Yahweh Sabaoth, the returning warrior Messiah, to pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is to be our prayer as awaiting people. The arrival of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's written on his thigh. It's written on his robes, which, robe, which is dipped in blood. This is our prayer. We're actually to be asking, your kingdom come, your rule, your reign, your influence in my life individually, your rule and reign in, in our community, the community of faith more thoroughly. We get our kids up on the platform and we recite verses saying we want his rule and reign. Ephesians read for Teddy that he'd be rooted in love, knowing the power of God's love. And for Elliot, that he would taste and see the Lord's goodness and fear the Lord. And for Mark, he'd be strong and courageous as we wait, as we pray. The best posture for waiting is prayer. I would encourage you once again, if you want to grow in prayer, join us Sunday morning we pray. Wednesday night we pray. It's a Zoom prayer meeting. It's really convenient. Send me your email address. I'll add you to the Zoom meeting. If you're intimidated by group prayer, lots of people just, they dial in. We have people, I'm not sure how they do this, but they'll, they'll dial in, they're muted, and the screen's off, and they're they're chauffeuring kids all over the burbs while they listen to the prayer. We need to pray because there are evil forces at work in the world that we cannot handle on our own. We need to pray for our congresspeople and our justices, our president, his cabinet, our governor, his cabinet, regardless of whether or not we like them. Why? Because we're told to. Paul writes to Timothy, pray for your leaders. The best posture of waiting, and where are people in waiting, is prayer. And of course, while we wait, the church is to be demonstrating the divine rule of God on earth. We're, we're to be submitted to the king, living out his kingdom principles, his passions. Another takeaway, a little more difficult than prayer, we're to be peacemakers. We need a divine warrior because we need a divine warrior who judges and wages war because unrighteousness and chaos is unleashed on earth 
And when Jesus returns, he'll mete out the punishment. It's interesting to note, and I think no small issue to note, that while his robe is dipped in blood, the army behind him has no blood on them. The people of God are with Christ. They're returning. They're on, on white horses as well, but they don't have blood on them. In other words, it's not our battle to fight. It's our battle to call upon him. Our part in the battle is to call upon him to fight it. My robes aren't dipped in blood. I'm to be a peacemaker. It's Christ who meets out judgment. It's Christ who addresses the wickedness in the world. It's Christ that has the sword, not the army behind him. We're to be peacemakers. Christ's own words are, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the children of God. You know, when the Messiah first came, everybody expected a warrior at that time. The good news of the gospel is before Christ came as a warrior, he came as a sacrifice for sin. Born in Bethlehem and born to give his life as a sacrifice for sin. He spills his own blood before he addresses the blood guilt of those who won't follow him. He spills his own blood. And it's not my job to address the blood guilt of those who won't follow him. That's his job. My job in this world as I wait is to be a peacemaker. I'll give you one example, powerful example to me. Mark and Sandy Hinkle, I think they're coming up on their 30th anniversary with our church as missionaries in the city of Chicago, the Roseland neighborhood, a neighborhood torn apart by gun violence. But before COVID, they had taken to the streets on Friday and Saturday nights, not an easy time to be on the streets in the Roseland neighborhood, and they would pray on the street corners. You talk about courage. You talk about peacemaking, and they saw a dip in the, gun the rate of gun violence in their neighborhood as they were out there praying. Now that's courage of Joshua 1.9. That's a, that's a tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. That's a knowing of Ephesians 3, the love and the power of God. We're to be peacemakers in our families. I said to somebody on the prayer call this morning, I said, still in my ears is something stupid I said two Thanksgivings ago as my family was around the table. I may swing back again and apologize for what I said. But I think of us this, this week as we move towards our families, and some we have difficult situations, we're to be peacemakers, not truth sacrificers. Therein lies the tension. But peacemakers, nonetheless, we speak the truth in love. I think of the angels that heralded Christ's birth. Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Let me pray that his favor would rest on us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us as a people. The revelation of who Christ is fully, not in part. Help us open our imaginations so that we can see Christ more clearly as the warrior that he is. Help us offer Christ fully, not in part, but Christ fully to our kiddos and to our neighbors and coworkers. In Jesus' name, for his glory and our good, amen.